From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Message 3, Sunday, 12 a.m. Hi, Rob, it's Brita. I've had an accident, and I'm upside down in my car. I've called 911, and I think the cops are coming. I just want you to know that I'm completely fine, except that I'm upside down and hanging from my seatbelt because I can't undo it. Um, I will call you as soon as I get out of here. I love my car. So, here I am. Bye. So you're a Brita? I am. From the phone message? Yes. And at the moment where you're, where you're making this phone call, you're hanging upside down, being held in place by your seatbelt. It seems like it would be hard to talk normally. Well, my head was also squashed up against the roof of my car, and it was a really odd position to be in. So I reached my cell phone and called this a wonderful woman at the state troopers and she said you're upside down in your car and I said yeah but I'm fine but send a whole bunch of people to get me out of here what happened to Brita is that she was driving her Subaru station wagon about 100 miles from her home in Maine there was a red SUV parked in the road just stopped there dead she swerved around it the road was wet she went into a ditch flipped over her shoulder is still hurt but basically she's okay the most amazing thing you say on this message is that moment where you pause and you just say, I love my car. Well, I'm talking about the fact that I've just murdered it, that I know that I'm not going to drive it again. And, um, and it's a sadness. It's a, you know, a tragedy for me to have done this to a car that was perfect its entire existence. It was really horrible. Oh, like it had done nothing to you. It had been perfect and yet. Right. Yeah. And yet I'd shot it. By mistake. Yeah. I did love my car. It was a really great car. It was like a dog. It always did what I told it to do, and it never broke down anywhere. And, you know, I talked to it once in a while. And the new car, I pat a lot <laughs> to tell it it's all right, that I won't do it again. Yeah. You know, I think we spend more time in our cars in America than anything else except maybe bed. Oh, I think everybody loves their vehicle. And if they don't, they should get rid of it and get something else that they can bond with. Today on our radio show, I love my car. We have five stories about feelings between people and machines. Act one, trunk in the trunk. In that act, a car stereo is so loud it cannot be played in any normal way. Act two, Baby, You Can't Drive My Car, about a car that broke a man's heart. Act three, objects in the rearview mirror may be alarmingly familiar. In that act, on the roads of Washington, D.C., a man chasing his own car. Act four, Not Your Father's Chevrolet Salesman, in which we reveal the secret weapon of the number one salesperson at a big Chevy dealer here in Chicago. Act five, End of the Road, about people who don't want to stop driving, no matter what. Stay with us. Tech one. Nearly every weekend of the summer, all over the country, there are these car stereo tournaments. Or maybe extreme car stereo tournaments is a better way to put it. We're talking about cars and vans that have been modified with one purpose in mind, to generate a blast of noise so loud 
that if you were actually in the car when the system was detonated, and that's the only right word for this, detonated, the air would be knocked from your lungs and your eyes would bulge out. Your nose might bleed. This is DB drag racing. DB stands for decibels, of course. David Siegel of the Washington Post attended the Steel Valley Regional Competition at the Mountaineer Gaming Resort in West Virginia. We're going to talk about obsession and subwoofers, and eventually we'll talk about girls and how to get them. But first, we're going to talk about a grudge. Specifically, we're going to talk about Vernon Sargent and his quest for revenge against his rival, Paul Carmichael. Vernon's a middle-aged black guy. Paul's a white teenager from a small town in Pennsylvania. It's a reckoning Vernon's dreamed about for a year. We met here at the uh, Mountaineer last September. The last show, he... um he actually beat me pretty good. Actually beat me pretty bad. Paul beat Vernon fair and square, but here's what bugs Vernon. There was a glitch in the volume meter at that competition, and in one of the early heats, Paul posted a super high number, the sort of number that only the most monstrous car stereos produce. Someone took a photograph of that moment, Paul apparently crushing Vernon in a head-to-head match, and the photo showed up on Paul's website. This was placed on his uh, personal webpage on DB Drag Racing. Uh, you know, it, it kind of got under my skin. I mean, and the reality of it all was he, know, he knew that the score was not legit. As far as Paul Carmichael is concerned, our shootout tomorrow is what I like to call it. It's going to be uh, very interesting. Uh, Paul is ranked higher in the world. I plan on making up some ground tomorrow. This is actually the first time I've been to a two-day event and my parents haven't come. This is Paul. As rivals go, he's pretty unintimidating. He just finished high school. He's a little gangly, wears glasses. There's something tech support about him. He's incapable of trash talk, and he's even modest about his own DB drag record. My first competition I went to, of course, I hit a 135 decibels. Was it good? Were you pleased with that? Uh, it was terrible, really. I mean, that's, that's like the worst possible score ever. <laughs> I, think, I think I was actually, I was last of the th- third of three. Of course, I didn't tell anybody that. I just said I came in third. <laughs> About a decade ago, this car stereo thing got way out of control, to the point where music isn't really part of it anymore. That's right, these systems are too powerful for music of any kind. Walk around the grounds here, a huge parking lot with dozens of guys working in teams, and you don't hear any music, except what's coming from the parking lot PA. Ask this one competitor, Dave Jennings, to play me a tune on his system, and that set off a five-minute hunt for a CD. He just didn't keep any near his flame-painted Chevy van, rigged with a dozen 6,000-watt amplifiers, a dozen subwoofers, and 70 12-volt batteries in a vehicle that weighs more than 33,000 pounds. When he finally found a disc and blasted it through his pride and joy, it was impossible to recognize the tune. It sounded like a rock band underwater. That's actually Aerosmith. Aerosmith threw a stereo that's five tons of bass and not an ounce of treble. In a normal car, it sounds like this. So when the cars line up to compete at a DB drag race and the volts start flowing, nobody reaches for Megadeth. Instead, 
They use this three-second electronically generated tone. They all call it the burp. The idea is to give everyone the same sonic raw material to work with, but the burp is practical too. Play a whole song on one of these systems, and there's a good chance the amplifiers will heat to the point where they burst into flames. DB Drag Racing qualifying rounds brought to you by SPL Max. Competitors stand by. That's Microsoft Mary, the computerized voice of this competition. A DB Drag Race looks a little like a regular drag race, without the actual excitement of the race part. Two vehicles roll up side by side to one of those ready, set, go light trees. You think the cars are about to peel off down the street. Instead, a referee tapes a sound meter inside each car and shuts the door. Ready. The competitors stand outside their vehicles with these on-off switches attached through a wire to their stereo. And when the race starts, they've got 30 seconds to burp their machines. That's the burp, heard from outside the car. Moments later, the volume reading for each racer is posted on a tote board overhead. The winner proceeds to the next round, tournament style. Winner, 151.5 dB. What's measured here is decibels, but everyone calls it SPL, short for sound pressure level. At these volumes, noise is a lot like a violent gust of wind, so DB drag racers do everything possible to stiffen and seal up their vehicles to prevent sound pressure and noise from escaping. It's an engineering problem. How do you build a stereo that's as loud as a riot in a car so perfectly soundproofed that you can't hear anything inside it? Doors are clamped shut, walls are often reinforced with poured concrete, the interior is dismantled seats and dashboard are ripped out. There's barely room for one person to fit inside. You end up with what is basically a huge mobile speaker box juiced by dozens of car batteries. It's a rolling vault of noise, like a tank designed at OzFest. But there are limits. We want cars that are, you know, have a shape of a car, have a function of a car. Our rules state that the car has to be driven into the competition. How far do you have to be able to drive the car? Uh, we usually require the competitor to drive the car 20 feet. 20 feet. This is Sam Horn. Yes, that's his real name. He's been judging DB drag races for years. He says most people trailer their cars to the event. Most of these guys have modified everything for maximum performance on the stereo, so there's no gauges. The windows have been replaced with uh, armor plating. Um, there's no air conditioning. There's no ventilation. I mean, there's there's nothing in there except the steering wheel and a gas pedal. But... A lot of times the steering wheel takes up way too much space, so they'll chop it and put whatever they can find in there. I've seen uh, golf club heads and uh, beer taps, and one guy used a half a speaker just so they could try to steer the car. Obviously, these things aren't built with passengers in mind. In fact, one of the ironclad rules at a DB drag race, you're not allowed in the car when it's showtime. The sound pressure in any DB dragger at full power will make you sick. At that point, you start suffering like uh, problems with your vision, uh, nausea. So we, uh, for safety, we have them operate their vehicle uh, outside uh, at anything above 110 decibels. So how loud are these things? Well, reach over to the volume control on your radio right now. Got it? In a second, I'm going to play with DB drag racing signal tone. So turn it all the way up now. Now take the sound, and if you can possibly imagine this, multiply it by five. A typical DB drag racer is many times louder than the front row of any rock concert you've been to. 
Lore has it that these systems can crumple paper, that you're better off standing next to a jet engine than in a DB drag racer with the windows up. Some of this is true, but the guy who created this league, Wayne Harris, says some of it is macho myth. I've heard people say that if you sit in these vehicles, it will kill you. That's not the case. These guys, you know, they'll sit in there tweaking their vehicles. Of course, they wear hearing protection, but but it's not gonna it's not gonna stop your heart or cause you to disintegrate or anything like that. If you want to know how all this DB drag racing madness started, Harris is your man. It goes back to when he was a college kid in the 80s, looking to meet babes. If you have something that everybody just thinks is really, really cool, and uh, and wherever you go, a crowd of people gather around, the girls want to be with that person. Harris should know. He began his car stereo career by building the Terminator, which was a 1960 Cadillac hearse he tricked out with a 30-inch subwoofer, the kind you find at rock concerts, 52 other speakers, six amplifiers, and a dashboard retooled to look like the cockpit of a jet. When he played Van Halen, he says you could hear it coming a mile away. I would wear earplugs, and then over that I would wear, um, like, the earmuffs like shooters use when they go to the shooting range. Did did that not seem slightly insane at the time, yeah. to, to build a car stereo so loud that in order to sit in the car and play it, you had to have earplugs and earmuffs? Yeah, it was kind of weird because, you know, it was kind of cool, though, because, you know, you people would see you wearing these headphones, and, they you know, they already knew that you had a, a pretty loud stereo, but then, you know, you're reinforcing that concept because they're actually seeing you in your own car wearing headphones. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty nuts. When I, when I think back about it now, you know, yeah, it's pretty, pretty crazy. He and a couple of his friends started competing to see whose system was the loudest. And pretty soon, they discovered that if you just want to make a decibel meter jump, music is not very efficient. So they invented the burp. That was 1995. The DB Drag Racing League that Harris founded today claims more than 10,000 competitors, and last year it staged more than 300 races, or whatever you call these things. You build up points at each event, just like NASCAR, and if you're good enough, you're invited to the national championships in Tennessee. There are celebrities, and, you know, um, uh, I've seen the competitors and the judges signing people's shirts, their hats. Uh, their equipment, their amplifiers in their car. I've seen people signing the vehicles themselves. You know, anytime somebody makes it to a level where they're actually a world record holder, in our world, you know, we it's our world, uh, then everybody's going to know who they are. I've been to a couple of these now, and I'm always stuck with the same question. Why? Why, oh why, oh why? It's not prize money. There's hardly any in it. And it's not women. There aren't any, these things. There aren't even spectators, unless you count other competitors, plus the few glum relatives who appear to have been taken here against their will. My best guess is that it's all about the quintessentially American obsession with glory, however fleeting. Everyone wants to be the king of a hill. That's international. But the number of aspiring kings always dwarfs the number of available hills. So in this country, we build more hills. We're geniuses, in fact, at building more hills. We've got a league for everything, including underwater hockey and lawnmower racing. That's DB Drag Racing. It's utterly pointless. 
a car stereo competition with cars you can't drive and stereos you can't listen to. Until you realize that it allows a group of people to call themselves the best in the world at something. You need that car shut off in lane two? It's mid-afternoon on Sunday. Time for Paul and Vernon's showdown. Paul looks worried. His system is acting a little flaky. I change the frequency, change the volume, it just gets lower. I tried testing, it's not doing anything different. So I'm just going to let it charge and go up there, give the best I got, and probably lose. Street B, lane one, Paul Carmichael, lane two, Vernon Sargent, competitors stand by. Hey, just need to get a thumbs up, ready in lane one from Paul Carmichael. Thumbs up in lane two, Vernon, watch the leaderboard, here we go. Paul and Vernon are each laying on top of their cars, their bodies acting as human sound baffles. Ready, set, go. 51.6 in lane two. Vernon burps first, posting 151.6 decibels. Then he stands back, looking pleased, and waits. Paul does nothing for a very long 20 seconds. This might be a psych out, or it might be tactics. If Paul holds out to the last moment, and his score is higher than Vernon's, Vernon won't have time to burp again in the 30-second window. Paul is just standing there. Ten seconds. With five seconds left, he finally moves. Five, four, three, two, one. 50.8. Time. And Vernon Sargent is our winner in Street A. Way to go, Vernon. Paul Carmichael, great run. Paul posted 150.8, nearly a decibel less than Vernon. Paul looks pretty devastated. He says later that he held off to the last second just to entertain the crowd. Vernon, meanwhile, is doing the DB Drag Race equivalent of an end zone dance. Yeah, we spanked that ass. It wasn't a default. You know, it wasn't fake. It wasn't artificial. I beat him fair and square. As the competition wound down, there was a lull in the action, and I couldn't resist. I drove my rented Chevy Cavalier to the competitor's lanes, and Sam hooked up the volume meter while I revved the engine a couple times and threw the official DB Drag Race CD into the stereo. Then I cranked the dial and played that signal tone as loud as I could. 124 dBs. Sam was giggling. It was the smallest number he'd ever seen in his entire career. And I'm not going to lie to you. That made me a little proud. I was the lowest of the low of all time, maybe in the whole country, possibly in the whole world. And nobody can take that away from me. David Siegel of the Washington Post. Act two, baby, you can't drive my car. Well, Jamie Kipman bought his first MGA two years before he was old enough to drive. He and three other guys each pitched in $12.50, and they bought one that was fire damaged, and they tried to get it to run. He's owned six other MGAs since then, this two-seat British sports car that stopped production back in 1962. And though he literally drives a different car every week as a reviewer and a columnist for Automobile Magazine, they actually bring them to his house. He says that the car that broke his heart over and over was the first MGA that he had that actually ran. I really wanted it to be a good car, and I spent all my money, and, and I started meeting other people who knew cars who were telling me all the things that were bad about it, and that made me feel really bad. So I, I, Oh, my I, God, like you married the wrong person. Yeah, like my all my friends think my wife is a jerk. Did you ever try to get a girl with that car? I had really high hopes for the MGA, and 
I was sort of still, you know, figuring out how to talk to girls and things like that. And um, I was, uh, I I guess I was, I was 17 and I had this job delivering chicken for this uh, place called um, Chicken Holiday or something like that. But there was this girl there that I had had a crush on since the sixth grade. I was convinced that when she saw this car and me in it, she would realize that I was the take charge kind of guy that she was, had always been looking for. Somehow, the, I, I managed to ask her out for a date, so I went to go pick her up in this car, and, mm-hmm. and I, I rolled up in front of her house, and the car's you know, belching and farting and making bad noises, and I grind the gears, in, inexpertly shifting it, and uh, she comes out of her house and just starts laughing and laughing at it. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I thought she was <laughs> laughing at me, but she was really laughing at the car, and uh, the rest of the day was just bad. I'm surprised that you kept the car after all these disappointing experiences. Yeah. Well, that's that's the stern metal I'm made of, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I just, like, I'm I surprised just, that you've gone on to have seven of them and all. Yeah, you're in a reality-based world, <laughs> I'm I'm faith-based, and uh, it's an article of my faith that there is no cooler car than the MGA. So, so right now you're you're a car tester, and that means just explain the procedure. You get a car every week. Well, I, yeah, right now I get a, at least one car every week gets brought to my house, and often I write about them, and sometimes I don't, and sometimes I just sit there and I look at them. And 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 is it like being a rock critic, where or like most of the CDs that a rock critic will listen to just are not that interesting? They're just all kind of bland, and so most of the cars that that you're driving just aren't that interesting. Uh, yeah, it's not that they're bad. It's just that they're not very interesting. You know, mediocrity, I guess, you know, I mean, is a relative thing, and as all cars get better, it takes more for cars to stand out. And it is very much the truth that all cars are better. I mean, in the 1960s and 70s, you could buy cars that would kill you, you know, if given half a chance. They handled treacherously or they they would break. That was the other thing is that, you know, cars, there were cars that were famous for blowing up which is one of the reasons I like old cars, because catastrophic um, malfunctions are still very much on your menu, um, which is exciting to me, but I understand that that's not what the general market likes. So um, and the, the net effect of it is is that is that cars just keep getting better and better, but the average car today is so much better than the best car was 10, 20 years ago or God forbid, 40 years ago, mm-hmm. that you can't really even have any fun in them. The fact is, is that modern tires, you know, they're, they used to be like, you know, you know, glorified bicycle tires, and now they're, you know, a foot and a half, two feet wide. They stick to anything. Right. Um, and, right. uh, you know, the brakes are unbelievable. They come out of, you know, supersonic transports, and they'll s- slow you down in a jiffy. So, so it's really hard to, I mean, what, what the... Enthusiasts always liked doing what sports car people in the 1950s would dream of was was um, sort of sliding around corners, you know, and, and controlling the car um, as you went sideways through a turn. And that was, you know, that was that was a stock and trade, and everybody, le- all you know, all people who were interested in cars learned how to drive sideways. Now you have to be going 90 miles an hour to get sideways because your tires are so big just for one reason and your suspension is so sophisticated that to have have fun that way is much harder for people and when it does happen it, they're going too fast. But what you're saying is that, that that what makes a car fun is an element of danger. I think that's part of it, but it's also the you know it's the mastery of man over machine. Oh right, right, right. Because because it, because if the machine basically does it all for you, then there's then there's no fun in it for you. Yeah, there's not a lot of skill involved, which is why I have to say that you know on the same fifty-five mile an hour roads, 
<clears throat> when I get in my 59 Morris Minor, I can be sideways at 12 miles an hour going around a turn. I never have to break the law. Nobody even knows that I'm driving at the absolute limit of my ability. Jamie Kidman, the New York bureau chief for Automobile Magazine, U.S. editor for Car Magazine, and a writer for GQ. Coming up, Car Salesman Smackdown, Hustle versus Bustle, Great News Tim and his nemesis, with opposite tactics, opposite strategies to sell you a car. That is all in one minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This is American Life from Ira Glass. As you're going to program, of course, we choose some theme. Today, it's our auto show, and we've arrived at Act 3. Act 3, objects in rearview mirror may be alarmingly familiar. Curtis Ittenfeld tells us tale. Darren is my older sister's fiancé, and for a long time, he drove a white 1990 Toyota Camry. It had a vertical dent on the trunk and a tow ball on the back. One afternoon two years ago, he went to where he thought the car was parked, near his apartment in Washington, D.C. The car was nowhere in a one-block radius of our apartment. And so I rode my bike around in the, in the rain, in January rain, rode my bike around in concentric circles around for about eight blocks. Then it became clear that it was just nowhere anywhere, and so I reported the car stolen. I mostly just thought, I'm never going to see my car again. Uh, That's what the police had told me also. What did they say to you? Uh, They said that most likely it was uh, some teenage kids who had taken it out for a joyride and that either would drive it until it ran out of gas and then they would leave it or maybe they would just drive it out of the city somewhere and dump it in a river or something. Darren's insurance company paid for a rental car, which he drove around for a couple days. He started thinking about what kind of car he'd buy next. One evening, he drove the rental over to a friend's house to watch a football game. It was either a Sunday or Monday, one of the Sunday or Monday night football games, and turned the corner onto their street. And at the stoplight in front of me, about a hop, half a block up, was a white Toyota Camry with a vertical dent on the, on the, on the trunk and a tow ball, and it was my car that was in front of me, and there were four people sitting in the car driving it. Um, And so I never actually went into my friend's house, but I stayed in my car and started tailing them, thinking that I would be able to figure out how to get my car back. 
Of course, retrieving your car while it's being driven by thieves can be a little complicated. Darren realized he'd need backup. He called 911. Hello. My name's Darren Spee. And my car was stolen while I was on vacation. Okay. And I filed a police report. I'm right now driving in my rental car. Mm-hmm. And I was driving around, and I'm right now following my car that was stolen. Headed in which direction? Listening to this tape, you realize 911 people really have heard everything. The operator snaps to action so matter-of-factly that it seems like maybe she gets this all the time. At a certain point, Darren wants her to acknowledge that these circumstances are a little special, right? I can't believe they were driving my car around my neighborhood. Not too bright. Not too smart at all. Police have been dispatched. Where are they now? They are. We're still in Pennsylvania. We're just about to cross. It goes like this for a few minutes. Darren driving through the dark, cold DC streets at about 30 miles per hour, both the victim and potential hero in this chase, giving the 911 woman frequent updates on their location. I was assuming that at any minute, you know, some cop cars were going to fly up behind us. Um, but in actuality, I passed uh, at least two precinct stations with parking lots filled with police cars but n- nobody nobody coming out after me and the whole time I was on with 911 on with this woman and she was just I have an APB out you know if they're available they'll come so I just kept following them and then we did this big U-turn on Pennsylvania Avenue and they're headed right on Pennsylvania <laughs> they just turned around on Pennsylvania headed towards uh, headed towards Maryland. Which, where? What's the last street? We're on Pennsylvania Potomac right now. now should I keep following them? Well, yeah, well, um, you know, but stay a safe distance, <laughs> of course. <laughs> At this point, I knew that they had to know I was tailing them because nobody's doing U-turns following them in Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, but at this point, it was mostly just, I was angry and uh filled with adrenaline, so I was ready to keep going. And I actually had thought of, as they were running the red light, I thought, well, maybe the thing to do is just to gun it and smash into their rear end, uh, figuring that whatever, the insurance company is going to pay for any damage, but if I smash into them, then at least they're stuck. And then, I mean, then presumably there, there are four of them, there's one of you, there might be some kind of scuffle or something? Well, I was... I, I obviously hadn't thought this whole thing through. <laughs> They're headed towards uh, towards the Anacostia River on Pennsylvania Avenue right now. They just ran a red light. Oh, shh. I might have lost them. Since they ran that red light, they were, I can't tell if they went up Minnesota or if they went straight on Pennsylvania. When Darren remembers his low-speed chase, he thinks it took 20 minutes. Actually, from the time he made the call to the time he lost the trail, four minutes and 10 seconds elapsed. The 911 woman gave him the address of the closest police precinct, which was one he'd just passed. Darren went in thinking the police had been breathlessly following his pursuit on the police band and would recognize him immediately. But they had no idea who he was. He made a second report of the same stolen car and went home. 
Uh, so the next thing, it's about two thirty in the morning, and my cell phone rings, and uh, and it's the it's the police letting me know that they had indeed captured the guys and retrieved my car, and that my car was being towed to the the city's tow lot for storage overnight. The police didn't give Darren much information about who'd stolen the car, why, or whether anyone had been arrested. But he got a few clues once the car came back to him, because the thieves had left behind all sorts of stuff. In the trunk was a toolbox with lots of expensive tools, including a blowtorch. There was a giant key ring with 50 or 60 keys on it, several of them master keys to different types of cars. There was a huge subwoofer and a leather case holding a vast collection of CDs, although not the kind of CDs that you usually associate with subwoofers. The Indigo Girls, Lilith Fair, Tracy Chapman, the Dixie Chicks. I'm standing with Darren in a storage area in the back of his apartment where he still keeps a lot of the stuff that was left in his car. If the key ring and the loot in the trunk tell the story of professional thieves with tools and musical contraband, the other stuff tells a different story, a more domestic one. There's a a couple of job applications in there. One of them was to Red Lobster, and then I don't know where the other ones were from. There was uh, some tubes of silly putty, and there were some football sticker helmets, and then they had, like, um, kids' toys in there. I kept one of the baby toys that they had in the car. It's a purple, purple, round, just a rattle, baby's rattle. They, they were definitely using the car, like, to just go about their regular business. It was hard not to imagine the car thief carting his kids around or pulling out the rattle if they started crying in the back seat or saying, I'm sick of jacking cars. I'd like to work in food service. One of the men left his voter ID in the car. He's a registered Democrat, 20 years old. Not that any of this made Darren feel any differently about these guys. I was mostly angry that they had put 3,000 miles in my car and had put all sorts of crap in it. And then that they were using my car to go break into other cars. I found out the police had arrested the owner of the voter ID, his last name is Martin, while he was driving the car. But they dropped the case. Apparently, catching someone red-handed driving a stolen car isn't enough evidence to make his case go to trial. The person can just say he got the car from someone else. I made an ultimately unsuccessful attempt to find this Martin guy. First, I sent a letter to both the address on the arrest report and the one on the voter ID. I had some difficulty with the wording. There's just no Hallmark card that says, I think you stole my future brother-in-law's car. Let's talk. I started calling around to Red Lobsters in the area, hoping Martin had picked up another application. I also called various phone listings for men with Martin's first and last names. One day, a guy answered. He said he was the godbrother of the Martin I was looking for. After mulling over several options in my head, I said, I think Mr. Martin might have had some involvement with a car belonging to a friend of mine. There was a long silence. Finally, the man asked, Why would I want to help you? Curtis Sittenfeld, she has a novel called Prep. Act 4. Not your father's Chevrolet salesman. Selling cars is only partly about the cars. Maybe it's not even halfway about the cars. 
There are different theories and ideas about how to do it. Competing theories. Sarah Koenig watched the process of automotive natural selection at a local dealer. Great News Tim is a salesman at Gillespie Chevrolet and Pontiac on the south side of Chicago. And the thing you should know about him is he's not their number one salesman. He's their number two salesman. Here's Tim. I'm the number one salesman at Gillespie, number one salesman in the world, best salesman in Gillespie. The only one who sells more cars than me is the owner, and the only reason why is because I assist him in his sales. The number one salesman at Gillespie, sorry Tim, is actually a woman, Yvonne Hawk, the only woman on the sales staff of roughly 30 guys, and she's easily 20 years older than almost all of them, a grandmother. She sells 16 or so cars a month. The rest of the guys, except for Great News Tim, average around 10 or 11 but he's also got that Muhammad Ali thing going. No, I'm something like the greatest in this prime. That's me, great news Tim, all day long. So you said you were the number one sales guy, but isn't Yvonne number one? Well, look, I am the greatest. I mean, if you add up my sales and you um, divide it by the months that I've been selling, you'll see. Is Yvonne your biggest rival here? I have no rivals. What's the first thing you say to someone when they walk in the door? Um, the first thing I do is I meet and greet the customer. Then I ask them something crazy like, are you here for the big sale? And usually they'll say, what big sale, you know? Is there any type of person where they walk in and you, go, you just go, I know my charm isn't the type of charm that's going to charm this person and I'm just going to let it go? I can sell anybody. I sold a man that couldn't talk one day. Now everybody was walking up to this man and saying, um, Hey, sir, how you doing? Um, you here to purchase a car? And the man, is, he's hunching his shoulders. You know what I'm saying? I walked up to the man and I hunched my shoulders. And then I pointed at a car and he was like, I pointed at another car. He shook his head and said, yeah. And I rubbed my fingers together as in, do you have money? And he was like, yeah. I said, let's go. I signed him up. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I, I sold a, a deaf and mute man a car. I sold a Chinese person a car. I sold all types of people cars. I could call somebody on the phone, seriously from the white pages of the phone book that's probably sitting at home on the couch eating cereal and sell them a car over the phone and they'll come in and purchase. Could you sell me a car? I sure could. You ready right now? Are you here for the big sale? Gallup came out with a poll that ranked car salespeople the least trusted professionals in America. They scored lower than lawyers and members of Congress. Nurses were the most trusted. School teachers were second. And if you think about it, both those professions, nurses and teachers, are associated with women. Hence, I believe, Yvonne's advantage in car sales over Great News Tim. He's the hard sell. He's testosterone. Yvonne, you just don't think she can rip you off. She looks and acts like your mother. In our very first conversation, she talked about her baby granddaughter, and I found myself confiding my fear of flying. I watched her cozy up to a middle-aged lady in the showroom by complimenting her outfit, which was pretty great. Kind of runway meets lumberjack look, all in green. Then talking about dogs and kids. It's not exactly flirting she's doing. It's more like infiltrating, but in the nicest possible way. Did you see our Gillespie keychains? Oh, we got nice, classy keychains. Yes. Where is William? Hang on. William's the guy who brings the swag to customers at Gillespie. William, to the showroom, please. Customer waiting. William, to the showroom. Is it, is it real good when I can take it to the pawn shop? <laughs> it looks like it is, but it ain't that good. The guy she's getting the keychain for, Rob Walker, is a jail guard and deputy sheriff. A big guy, 255 pounds. But here in the showroom with Yvonne, he's a little sheepish. He's got messed up credit. He's worried about getting financing. 
knows he can't get his dream car, a Cadillac Seville, but he walked in hoping he could at least get a truck of some kind. She's willing to help him out with the credit, but she lets him know he can't afford a truck. Not right now. She encourages him to buy something smaller, make payments for a year, and then come back next December and she'll sell him that truck. They walk around the lot, but management doesn't let me go with them. Too sensitive for national broadcast. So they both tell me about it when they stroll back in. When him and I went on the lot at first, it was certain cars that were out of his range. And so me and him did a little bout. But I did it in a nice way so that he wouldn't feel bad that he couldn't afford those because he can't right now. So. What were the cars he had his eye on at first when you went out there? Uh, LS. Uh, What's that? A, that's the Lincoln. Oh, man. I, I can really picture myself in that Lincoln. You know, because at first I didn't see it at first. And we walked the whole lot. And it's like it was calling me. So I looked over there. I'm like, whoa. I said, hey, let's go check this out. So she's like, oh, this is nice. This is nice. Leather seats. I think it had a sunroof and stuff. So she looked. She said, oh, no, it's, it's got too many miles on it. It had 79,000 miles on it. Okay. He travels to and from work, and he's got a couple of kids that he picks up and takes to different things. How quickly is he going to be over 100,000 miles? And she was like, well, my opinion, I wouldn't get it. I would go, I would go with something else that got lower miles. And I was like, whoa, you know, because you use a salesperson or whatever you want. I felt good. I felt like that, okay, yeah, she knew she could probably disappoint me, but she's going to tell me the truth. She reminded me uh, of my mother or, 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 or auntie, that, how she told me that I shouldn't get the Lincoln. And, and that most mothers and good aunties do things like that. They're going to tell you the truth, like just like an outfit you got out. That outfit is ugly. You should you shouldn't wear that outfit. You're gonna be a little hurting, you know. But you know, at least you're not gonna be out in public with an ugly outfit on. <laughs> Buckle up. Finally, Yvonne convinces him to test drive a used Chevy Impala, not the sexiest car in the world, but it's got leather seats and a sunroof and low mileage, and he fits in it. How do you like it, Mr. Walker? It's uh, it's all right. It's all right. You know. I'll He's clearly not in love with this car, but that doesn't matter. It's not about the car. Well, I know one thing. Uh, when I do come back, I'm definitely going to ask for you again when I, when I upgrade. So, I, I like, like I said, I like the way you, you know, you make me feel like, you know, I'm somebody. Other places, uh, other places, no, other places I went to, you know, credit not all A1, you know, people treat you like you, you know, a second-class citizen. But you're not. Now, if you're thinking that Yvonne is just some soft-hearted granny, it's time to talk price. She's asking $20,630 for the Impala, $2,000 more than the suggested dealer's price in the Blue Book, and $7,000 more than what the dealer paid for the car, if they paid Blue Book trade-in value. She's not one to flinch about that. If there's one thing she's known for at Gillespie besides selling a lot of cars, it's that she's tough. You don't want to cross her. Her co-workers tell me how she strong-arms finance companies, how she yells at managers when she thinks they're slowing down a sale. Here are Will and KC, two of the guys on the floor. She's not afraid of nobody. She's not afraid of anyone. <laughs> anyone at all. She has a wonderful personality. It can change on you in a minute to your <laughs> I asked Rob if he's noticed this side of Yvonne. It turns out he has, and he's got a whole philosophy about people like this who are tough but nice. Uh, an individual like that that's nice and, 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 and try to make sure that she treats you like you like you a human being, I, I wouldn't mess with them in a negative way. You know what I'm saying? Because 
a, a, a nice person. I mean, such as yourself. You, know, you, you look like that you real nice, and maybe somebody can push over you to a certain degree. But I would hate for you to turn or her to turn into the evil person because there may not be no stopping. When you mess with a nice person or a person they call uh, pushover or lame or geek or whatever, I learned in my line of work, them the type of people you don't mess with. Not in a negative way. It's almost like messing with a short person. You know, you just don't do it. You're saying I'm like a tinderbox. I could, like, explode it. I, 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 I'm saying that if, if your guy do something that just push you to the edge that he may be in serious trouble he may actually see the devil he may be able to tell someone on an interview like this i honestly believe that there's such a thing as a devil and i seen it and they may ask why because i did something to my wife or my girlfriend and i seen the devil given all that the stuff about the devil i ask about the price of the impala if he's going to challenge yvonne are you going to haggle for this a little bit? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to see. I'm going to see. Can I, you know, work some little magic, you know, talk to her. You know. Soon Yvonne comes back. She's carrying a contract. She slides it in front of Rob and points. This is the price. 20630 Right. Okay. And then your tax and your plates and everything and your down payment. And then this is what you'd be trying to finance. He signs. Doesn't haggle doesn't say a word about the price. While he's waiting for his car to get cleaned up, Yvonne insists he eats some pizza that's been brought in. You've been here a long time, she says. You must be hungry. A woman comes through the dealership selling teddy bears. Rob buys one. I figure he's just being a nice dad, getting his kids a present. But then, he walks over to Yvonne, the person who's just sold him an Impala for $2,000 above Blue Book, and gives it to her. I already have, um, I have a, a, my, my biological mother... I have a stepmother. Can, can, you, can I consider you the, a, a, a mom and a family too? And I like that. I really would. Grab bag and say I'm gonna buy you lunch. Then and people do that, and they bring me flowers and stuff for my birthday, and I like that. This is something Yvonne has in common with Great News Tim. He says his customers love him. They bake him cakes. They bring him candy. But where Yvonne has him beat, the reason she's number one and he's number two is that no one's ever going to call him mom. Sarah Koenig is a producer on our program. Act 5, End of the Road. People do not want to stop driving. In Illinois, uh, where our show comes from, once you turn 87 to keep your license, you have to take a road test every single year. It's a huge thing, losing the right to drive, a real turning point for people. Rosina Salerno is a 91-year-old widow. She had a stroke and very reluctantly, under doctor's orders, gave up her car. It was an 84 station wagon, a Chevy station wagon. I loved it. It, it. it was my life. Oh, I felt so much better when I was driving. I, I, can't, I can't tell you how much a car means to a person. You're young, and you really don't realize that, but if you have to give up driving, you're going to miss it. Yeah. Nobody, nobody can understand what it's like unless you go through it. And, and even now, believe it or not, parking is over here. I can look out the window in my bedroom, 
and all the cars are parked in, underneath that window. And sometimes I forget that I don't have the car anymore. I go out there to look if my car is parked in the... <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? I, I don't know what my... What am I going to do without a car? Which brings us to this story of an old man in his car. But uh, to understand this story, first a little history about 1955. 1955 was a very good year for cars and a bad year for drivers. The 55 Chevy Bel Air came out and Corvette got a V8 engine. But James Dean died in his Porsche on the way to a car race in California. And the worst racing accident in history took place at Le Mans when Pierre Levey, lucky Pierre, crashed his Mercedes-Benz on the front straight, killing 81 people. As the dead and maimed were carted away, Mercedes withdrew from the event and, at the end of that season, quit motorsports altogether. One side effect of this, a British driver named Sterling Moss could no longer race the Mercedes that had become world famous for driving just a month before, when he set the course record, it was never defeated, in a road race in Italy called the Mille Miglia, the Thousand Miles. Moss and uh, his navigator, Dennis Jenkinson, covered the distance in 10 hours, 7 minutes, and 48 seconds, which meant basically traveling at 100 miles an hour for 10 hours through little villages and winding country roads running the length of Italy. It's considered one of the greatest driving achievements in history. The car that Moss drove is nearly as famous as he is, a Mercedes-Benz 300 SLR, this big silver cat of a car with red numbers 722 on the sides. Moss and the 722 still keep in touch, appearing regularly together at racing events, like ambassadors at large for Mercedes-Benz. And recently, Dan Neal, the automotive critic for the Los Angeles Times, got a ride with Moss, now Sir Sterling, in the old 722. Sir Sterling Moss and the Mercedes-Benz 300 SLR, number 722, have been going steady 50 years, long enough to make it a common-law marriage. The car is an open-top version of the famous Mercedes Gullwing, these Mercedes post-war silver arrows were so-called because of their shiny skins of electron and aeronautic metal lighter than aluminum. 2,000 pounds and over 300 horsepower, these cars were unbreakable. Then there's Sir Sterling. People say he was the first modern race car driver. He made his living at the wheel. He wasn't just an aristocrat playing with cars. He was tight with a quid. He was the first driver to take physical fitness seriously unlike many of his competitors for whom racing was macho part and parcel with boozing and broading the night away. His career-defining moment, his life-defining moment, was the 1955 Mille Miglia win, an almost supernatural performance that came out of nowhere. The Mille Miglia record Moss set in 1955, 10 hours, 7 minutes, and 48 seconds, are numbers every good wheelhead knows by heart. Now it's 2004. On a rainy morning in October, Mercedes flies a few automotive journalists out to Virginia International Raceway to test a new car, a 617-horsepower carbon fiber monster that they have named the SLR. Price tag, $452,000. To sell the idea that this car is heir to the great SLRs of Moss's time, and, by the way, I'm not buying it, Mercedes brings Sir Sterling and the original 722 to give riders rides around the track. This is a little bit like getting Lindbergh to do some sightseeing in the spirit of St. Louis. I meet Sir Sterling at lunch. 
It's him, all right. His features have thickened with age, and he is, at 75, no doubt about it, an old man. He's a little hard of hearing, but still quite within his wits. He's dressed in a dark red turtleneck and a houndstooth jacket, every inch an English gentleman. When it's time to go out to the track, he rises, slowly. An assistant brings a wheelchair around for him. Sir Sterling has recently had back surgery. At the track, the handlers are busy priming the car. The 722 is a beautiful brute, in perfect condition, like a sculpture of streaming mercury. Two bolsters, like camel humps, are fixed to the rear deck behind the driver and the passenger. Sir Sterling arrives. The camera crews go nuts. He's wearing a pale blue one-piece cotton driving suit, a white polo helmet, goggles, and Italian crochet string-back gloves with leather palms. This is what racers wore back in the day, before fire-resistant Nomex and Kevlar full-face helmets. The car has no doors. Two people help as Sir Sterling stiffly climbs a stepstool and settles into the driver's seat. He pushes the starter button, and the car comes alive with a snappish bark. Gray smoke jets from the massive exhaust pipes jutting from the car's right side. Then something wonderful happens. The hand fits the glove, the hammer hits the string. The old man disappears behind the goggles, and the racer emerges from beneath the helmet. The car seems to recognize him. Sir Sterling slips the clutch and roars off. Moss said many times he could not have won the Mille Millia without his navigator, Dennis Jenkinson, the bearded and gnomish Jenks. Their secret weapon? The pair ran a reconnaissance lap of the race, with Jenks recording every detail on a roll of paper, eventually 15 feet long. This he unrolled during the race, shouting course notes to Moss over the cannonade of exhaust, when Jenks wasn't busy throwing up. When the race was over, the pair took off their goggles. This is a classic image of motorsports. Their faces blackened with dirt and soot except around the eyes. They look like pandas. Moss brings the car around, and it's my turn. I climb the step stool and carefully belt in. Because the engine is tipped over more than 50 degrees to the right, the transmission tunnel runs between Sir Sterling's legs, the accelerator and brake on one side, and the clutch on the left. This would be damn awkward for most people, and I wonder if a man who can barely walk can manage. Oddly enough, though, Moss finds this straddling position more comfortable than a regular car. He sits astride the car as if it were a horse. The handlers push the car to get it going. Moss flicks a bug from his goggles and tears off. We're on course. The first thing I notice, Jenks didn't have much to hang on to. It's too loud to talk, so I sit in Jenks' seat and I watch Sir Sterling muscle the wheel. We're not going particularly fast, but the car would be a handful for civilians. It doesn't have power steering. To give drivers better leverage, the steering wheel is oversized, a big four-spoke aluminum wheel with a wooden rim. Moss shuffles the wheel through his hand so that they are always in the same position, three and nine. 
He twists his right foot to cover the brake and gas pedal, to rev the engine while braking and downshifting, to save wear and tear on the gearbox. I watch him work. What is it like to be so good at something that even old and crippled, you're still better than nearly everyone else? We reach the main straight. The wind starts to whistle. He points at the big white tachometer. Every time he changes gears, the gear shift knob has Roman numerals on it. He indicates the gear with his gloved right hand. Third, fourth, fifth. That's about 110 miles per hour at this RPM. Now we've arrived at our real destination. This is how fast Moss and the SLR were speeding across the roads of Tuscany in the plains of Emilia Romana a half century ago. This is the speed that partnered them in history, so one of them cannot be thought of without the other. Imagining the Italian countryside going by, it suddenly seems very fast. Tomorrow, the car will go back to the Mercedes Museum in Stuttgart, Sir Sterling to his house in Florida. We thread through a few more turns, then he wheels the silver car back to the pits. My rendezvous with history is concluded. I thank him and give the car a pat on the dashboard, and then the two of them roar off. Dan Neal is automotive critic of the Los Angeles Times. Thanks to Mercedes for recordings of the original SLR 722. Our program was produced today by Sarah Koenig and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Diane Cook, Wendy Dorje, Jane Feltis, Amy O'Leary, and Lisa Pollack. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production up from Todd Bachman's Daya Challoner and Chris Ladd. Special thanks today to Caitlin Chetterly, Sean Cole, Rick Thomas, Aaron Ryder, and Jorge Just. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to any of our programs for absolutely free or buy CDs of them, where you know you can download today's program and our archives at audible.com slash thisamericanlife. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by Volkswagen of America and the Pedestrian Safety Crumble Zone. No, that is not a name of a band. It is just one of 120 not-so-standard features found on the all-new German-engineered Passat, Learn more at newpassat.com. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by Tori Malatia, who is a winner, who is number one, and who has just one question for you. Are you here for the big sale? I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI Public Radio International.